Welcome to the Rebel Entrepreneur Podcast and two of my favorite lessons, sayings, expressions from the Rebel Entrepreneur Podcast are, if you don't know if it'll work, run a mini experiment, that way you know. Uh, and the second one is sell before you create, which is the opposite of what nearly every entrepreneur does out there. They sell after they have created, which leads to all sorts of interesting challenges. So welcome to a special episode. I'm very lucky to have with me today uh, a special guest, Sarah, who is one of the listeners of the podcast. Sarah, you live in Tokyo and you're a writer. I am. And I, I should add that I am an American who lives in Tokyo. I am not a Japanese who lives in Tokyo. So like you, I am a globetrotter. From your accent. <laughs> You'd never guess, would you? <laughs> Um, so welcome to the show. I'm very excited about this. You wrote me a, an email about your mini experiment and what you did. Well, it turned out not to be quite so mini, but your experiment and what you did. Yes. Well, I am a big fan of the show. I've been listening right from the inception and I have been absorbing oh, wow. and imbibing all the lessons. And uh, But I am a creative writer. I'm not attempting to make my living off of it. I do have a, a day job and other things like husband that helps pay the bills. Um, but I think that it's cool to make money off of what we create, not only because people, you know, they, they value what they pay for and they pay for what they value. So I've never been like weirded out by making money off of my creative work because I thought, well, that's how I know people are getting something out of it. And they're more likely to take it seriously if they've paid for it too. Like it goes both ways. It really does. It really does. And uh, I remember reading some things about the amount of money you make shows your value as a business. And I found that quite interesting because I've been long a proponent of the idea that your job is to fix other people's problems to make their life better and you might be going how does creative writing fix people's problems well it entertains them it makes their life better it gives them enjoyment and the more you fix someone else's problem the happier you make them the more enjoyment you give them the more they will reward you for that if you ask for the cash uh, so it's an interesting one uh the amount of money you make can be related to the amount of value you bring. It's just that the economy doesn't value all skills equally. So it can be disheartening for some businesses and some types of work when you're like, I've put my life and soul into this and people love it and I'm only getting paid $2, $5, $10, whatever it is. Yeah. And creative work solves people's problems in lots of different ways. And there's lots of competition. And it's not like an obvious problem solving, like I need my leaky faucet fixed. So yeah, so it is, it's hard to like get a clear signal. But it is, I think I found very encouraging that people actually want to pay for my creative work is also a signal like this is good, keep making more of this. Even if it's not a huge amount, the fact that anyone's willing to part with any amount of money for my work is like very encouraging. Also, because I would do it anyway. <laughs> So I'm glad, glad to have that extra signal, like, go ahead, keep doing this. So because you would do it anyway, why did you want to sell it? Why, If you're doing it for yourself, if you're doing it for enjoyment, if this is your passion, mm -hmm. why did you want to turn it into a business? Why did you want to sell it on the side? Well, I think that if artists are honest with themselves, there is something inside of them that drives them to create. But 
creating it is not the end of the story. If you create something, you really do want someone else to receive it in the end. Like even Emily Dickinson, famously the American poet recluse who never published anything in her whole life. She kept all the copies of her poems and they were neatly arranged and found after her death. So even though she was too shy to do it in her lifetime, she didn't throw them out. She wanted them to be found. And so I think uh, artists who are honest with themselves, I mean, you can be someone who creates purely for an audience with no like internal compass guiding you. And, you know, I think that's in a marketplace that's legit. But I mean, even if you're creating out of your own passion and vision, you still really want someone else to react to it and respond to it and benefit from it. And so, you know, the usual way we do that is by selling things. I also give lots of my creative work away for free. But again, because people value what they actually invest money in, I think they're more likely to take your creative work seriously if at least for some of it they're willing to pay. Like maybe the free stuff is to help them get a taste for it and see if it's for them. But after that, if they value it, people don't feel bad about paying for creative work. They're actually happy to support a creator. Yes, definitely. I love supporting creative works I like, and I want to give them money so that they keep doing it. I enjoy it. Please do (laughs) more. Um, Cool. So like, is this the first time you have charged for your work or is this the latest iteration or how far along your journey are you? Yeah. So I should probably say that what I'd like to talk over with you today is a specific mini experiment I ran. So I, in 2020, like the way I coped with COVID and lockdown was I started my own little indie publishing house. It's called Thornbush Press. And because I was writing the kind of stuff, like I'm a very niche writer. So I am also a Lutheran pastor and theologian, and I love to cook and I like to write fiction. And so I'm like this weird triangle of those three things. There's not a lot of competition. And there's also (laughs) probably not a lot of market demand. But for the people who like those three things, like I'm it, I'm right there. So, uh, but it also meant that like traditional publishers couldn't really make any sense of what I was doing. And when the whole economy goes sideways, they're not going to take a risk on something new and strange. So then I Mm -hmm. kind of learned about all the amazing opportunities for indie publishing now. And I was like, and then I realized that's what I want to do anyway. I want to take my own risks and keep my own profits. That is a good combo for me. And it gave me total creative control over what I was doing too. So by the time I got to the mini experiment I'm going to talk about today, I'd already published a handful of books. Um, I had I had a website already since I think 2016. I'd been collecting email addresses. I do a, a quarterly newsletter. Um, so I'd been doing that since 2018, maybe. Um, I have a podcast. I do with my dad, who's also a theologian. So like I had these various ways of connecting to an audience that liked various aspects of my work. Um, But this, so what I'm going to talk about now is I wrote a novel, a big honkin' novel, 500 pages (laughs) called... Wow. Yeah. Called The Tumbling Down. I, of course, like most novelists, had written a lot of crappy novels before I got to this novel. (laughs) But this one finally worked, and I really believed in it. I thought, this one is going to work. It's going to sell. But then you do the math with indie publishing, and even if you don't have a publisher taking a cut and paying you a pathetic royalty, the return on investment is very slow and small. A couple bucks for each sale. It's a little bit demoralizing. And after, you know, the emotional outpouring and years of editorial training to learn how to write a good story that worked and then, you know, 
layout and recording the audiobook and uploading the ebook file and squaring things with the printer to only make $2 per copy was just really, really depressing. So I thought, I know I will take the principles of the Rebel Business School and Alan Donegan, and I will figure out how to run a mini experiment to see if it's possible to make more money off of a novel than just the trickle of sales through Amazon. And that is, that's what I'm here to share with the world, my successes and failures. I love that. So what happened? Tell us what happened, because I love <laughs> the idea of creating more profit than you would. And your focus on generating some profit out of doing the book, I think is fabulous. Um, so yeah, what happened? What happened? So what I was thinking is, what can I give people above and beyond just the printed book or the ebook or whatever? So I already have the value. Um, I'm not even counting the cost of my labor because I do it anyway, right? So the idea is, what what can I... Th this is, I guess, where I took the idea of of sell before you create your value. Like with a novel, you create the value and then you try to sell it. But I thought I could create a specific experience around the novel and I could test it and see if anyone would buy it before I would go through with it. So what I came up with is, um, so this I did through 2022 from like June to October of 2022, I came up with the idea. The book is 18 chapters. So I split up each of the chapters into five sections, Monday through Friday, and um, basically copied and pasted into scheduled emails for Monday through Friday for 18 weeks, starting in June, ending in October. And what I did then is I advertised to my uh, on my website, through my mailing list, on my podcast, uh, through personal emails to people. I actually discovered I have a fair number of fans who don't get my newsletter, so that's a whole nother marketing issue we could talk about at some point, uh, how to how to connect with those people. But I just, I did what you said. I contacted people and asked, are you interested in this thing I have to offer? And um, so over the course of like maybe a month, I sent out a bunch of emails and did the podcast advertising asking, would you like for $50 to subscribe to the novel before it's published? It wasn't published till November of last year. So this would be, you'd be a, a reader ahead of time. You'd get it serially. So every morning when you wake up, with your coffee, you'd get to read the next installment in the story. And then on top of that, um, four times in the course of the 18 weeks after major pivots in the plot, I organized a live video chat so that all the readers who wanted to could hop online together with me and react to the story so far, ask questions, and then I would always invite them to speculate about what was going to happen next without, of course, giving any spoilers. So that was the basic offer at $50. And that was, you know, it was a little bit of my time to set up the emails and of course to do the video chat, but that was so much fun. Like I found out after I started doing it, it was just hugely rewarding to be, you know, talking to readers who were like dying to know what was going to happen next. <laughs> and um, even some of them were like, I hate the weekends now because there's no installment on Saturday and Sunday. I have to wait till Monday until the story starts again. So that was you know, just great feedback to know that they were so invested in the story. Um, so that was the $50 tier. And then I don't know if I got the idea from Kickstarter or something to offer multiple tiers of investment. So if you got for $75, you would get all that. Plus you would get a printed paper copy 
Oh, I sent all the $50 tier people a free ebook at the end. So it would all be in one place rather than in the email. $75, you get all that. Plus you get a printed paper copy. So I can order those at cost and then mail them. So it was a few dollars, but it wasn't too bad. And I would send them the audiobook, which is a digital file. So it's free delivery. And again, I was going to create that value anyway. So it didn't cost me anything extra. And then at the $100 tier, you got all of that. Plus... I promised a limited edition hardcover. And this is the point where, yes, the uh, blaring lights and sirens come on like, wait a minute, she promised it. Did she price it out? And the answer is no. So that is the uh, hold that in the back of your mind for the end of this (laughs) this conversation. So that was the idea. And I know like there are there are platforms that do serial fiction um, and there are things like Kickstarter that offer to launch projects. But I thought, well, I have a website and a mailing list and a podcast, you know, like why go through someone else? Why not just offer? And I figured only my super fans would be willing to take a risk on a novel like I gave them the basic you know, the description of it, but they had no idea if I was a good fiction writer or not. This was really like venturing out somewhere new. So I wasn't too worried about like, you know, having a broad platform. I was really, I was also thinking of the principle of serve your true fans better. So I thought this would be a very cool experience for true fans. I love that. I love that. So you've got your three product tiers, $50, $75 and a hundred dollars. You've got your different stages, um, And then you're thinking, okay, I'm going to use my podcast, my emails to get it out to people. Uh, What happened? You spent a month marketing it, you said. About that. How did that work? Who came back to you? How did you take payment? Were they paying on the website? How did it work? Yeah. So I had a link directing them to my website where I can receive payments and they could pay directly that way. Um, And two people who didn't understand PayPal asked if they could send me checks. (laughs) I accepted the checks instead. (laughs) But afterwards, (coughs) excuse me. So I figure at the time I had about 650 subscribers to my email list, which was not huge, but not tiny either. And I probably at the time had, I don't know, like maybe... 300 like regular downloading listeners to my podcast. So again, I'm very niche, so it's not huge, but the people who subscribe or listen are like really focused on what I do. And so I sent four emails, did a couple podcasts, and the result was that I got 29 subscribers in all. Uh, and I kind of broke them down into categories. I got really granular. I thought, Alan Donegan will be so proud of me. So here's what I have. I had five people who were spouses or family members of the subscribers, and I sent them the emails for free, but they only got one copy of the physical product if that's what they paid for. Seven people who subscribed were personal friends or family members. Thanks, mom and dad-in-law. Uh, <laughs> seven were colleagues, so people I know professionally but don't have a close personal relationship with. Seven were people I didn't know at all, had never spoken to, gotten an email or anything from at all. Uh Of those people, four subscribed after the first mailing on my list, uh, four subscribed after the third mailing, nobody subscribed after the second or fourth, (laughs) one subscribed after hearing about it on my podcast, and seven people subscribed after receiving a personal email from me about it, people who were not on my email or or on my my website mailing list for my newsletter. Mm. Um, 
then, so those are the people more or less broken down who who subscribe. So it was interesting to kind of see the lay of the land between very close personal relationships to middle term to totally unknown. So it kind of like it spanned the whole spectrum pretty well there. Um, and then, interestingly, of those, um, only one person subscribed at seventy five dollars. Um, and I have I heard after that that um, often the middle tier is intended to actually push people to the top tier. <laughs> So it seems to have had that effect. Most people either went for 50 or 100. And of all the people in the $75 and $100 tier who could get the audiobook, less than half ended up downloading it even after I sent them the code to do so. So it seems like they weren't in it for the audiobook. Um, mm. Also, of all the people who subscribed, fewer than half attended the video chats. So even though I would like, I heard from, I think, nearly everybody by email that they loved the story and really enjoyed it. Um, for them, again, it was really the most basic offer, the serial story Monday through Friday for 18 weeks that they that they most wanted and most enjoyed. And, um, you know, even the chance to like talk live to the author, <laughs> that wasn't what they were in it for. Uh, you know, so the ones who did show up, they were really into it. And that was tons of fun. But that wasn't the majority. Um, and let's see, uh, of all those people, then 12 people subscribed at the hundred dollar rate and eight subscribed at the $50 rate. The rest were family members, the one at 75. And so drum roll, please. I ended up making off of my novel, $1,675, which is way more than I've made from direct sales of just the book by itself. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. I love that. And you've, you created packages, you offered extra value. And I think one piece that came to me as you were talking was even though in less than half showed up to the author chats, the video calls, I bet you that engagement was hugely valued by the people who did show up and created a lot of energy. So I think sometimes we get disheartened when it's only a few people showing up, but the energy it creates is unbelievable. So there is value with connecting with your audience and that chat, I bet, well, I'm going to ask rather than betting, like, <laughs> what was that like for you? Did it give you value, those video calls? What did you learn? What did you think? Yeah, it was amazing. In fact, um, the what we'll discuss here is one of the dangers of being a creator who finally gets a response is you want to pay them because you feel so grateful. So I would have paid them to come on and talk to me about my novel because it was so rewarding and so much fun. The, their speculations about what would happen next, what they got right and wrong, you know, what what parts of the story they resonated with. There, it, it's um, kind of it focuses on a whole family and different people like really felt more attached to different characters when they behaved badly they had very strong opinions and they're like how could you let her do that and you know but like they were really feeling it at such a deep level and probably the nicest um most or i'd say the most meaningful compliment i got at the end after it was all over after the fourth video chat one of the subscribers wrote and said so interestingly enough the whole time i've been reading your book i've also been training for a marathon and the marathon was the day after the story finished and i've known from previous experience of marathons that when I finish the marathon, I feel a total letdown that it's over. Well, actually, the letdown of your novel being over is worse than the marathon <laughs> letdown. I'm so sorry it's done, but I'm going to tell everyone I know what a great book this is and encourage them to read it. So, oh, that's wow. lovely. That was amazing. Yeah. That is fantastic. Um, 
so what did you learn from this whole experience? Because you've got a great headline number that you've taken a lot more than normal people would by selling a novel. Um, what did you learn from this experience that you think people listening might be able to take away from it? Well, I think what I really learned is that like you always say, you can have value, but do different things with it. So a novel is, I mean, it seems like it's just a printed book or an ebook maybe, um, or even, you know, the standard now for indie authors is print book, ebook and audiobook. but actually you don't have to stop there. And having a way of getting people to engage with the novel, not just by buying the print thing and sitting down with it, gave them a different way of engaging and getting excited. Um, what I also learned though, is that the, the cheapest, option for me ended up being the most attractive option for them. So this is the part where I have to tell how I ended up um, losing <laughs> the profit that I made. Oh, no. Yes. So um, so again, I was thinking, probably mis misinterpreting some things I'd heard on the podcast, which is to sell your value before you create it. So I just promised this limited edition hardcover. And I had sort of like vaguely looked at printing options, but I wasn't I didn't price it out and I didn't really think it through very carefully, but I thought I've made $1,675. You know, a little bit of that will go towards the paperback copies. Um, but basically, you know, it's, it's mine, all mine, you know, like I, I'm fine. Uh, but you know, there were, there were other expenses along the way too. So when I got down to doing the limited edition, I had some options. One was that I could just commission a different cover and get those printed print on demand and then just send those. Unfortunately, I loved the cover that I commissioned for the, you know, the book that would be published so much. I felt like, well, anything else I choose is not going to be as nice. So I don't want the, the, the subscribers to feel disappointed that they got a less awesome cover. So I thought, all right, well, I'll stick with the cover that I have, but I'll find a printer that can offer bells and whistles. So I looked around and I found a printer um, that would do a very tiny print run. So this is the other problem is print on demand is one thing, but if you're going to add the bells and whistles, like uh, colored end papers or a ribbon or stitching, that is a limited print run. And that makes the price go up some, not terribly, but some. So I found one that did that and they would do it for a print run of only 13. So that was for the 12 subscribers. Plus I wanted one for myself. That was fine, except then at that point, I was so overflowing with gratitude to these people for taking a chance on my art that I was like, I'm going to give them the most amazing hardcover they've ever seen, which means sewn signatures. So in printing, by far the most expensive cost is sewn signatures. If you have a glued binding, it's much cheaper. That's what all print on demand is, sewn signatures. And of course, the bigger your print run, the less it costs per unit. If you're only doing 13 books, it's a lot per unit. But I was just carried away. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to order 13 books at 500 pages with sewn signatures. That basically meant each book cost $80. And that wow. also meant that basically, um, uh, well, okay, so that, that was already pretty expensive, but I was like, it's okay, I still come out ahead. Then basically what happened was bad luck. And now I realize that businesses have to budget with bad luck as a possibility in mind and just like flub ups <laughs> along the way. 
So basically what happened, the bad luck is first that my cover designer, although a brilliant artist, I realized afterwards was kind of new to creating covers to specification for printers. And so I had to go through a lot of iterations with her to get it right. And so that meant that my total cost for her went up above the initial estimate because we had to go back and forth so many times. Um, then this special, um, printer that I used, they, there was some confusion between metric and imperial. So it took a few times to get those specifications right. And I talked to different personnel on the phone of the printer and they didn't always give me the same answer. So then I had to like have further updates from my designer before I finally got the specifications correct. So so that ended up costing me a couple hundred dollars extra by the time I finally got everything signed off. And even then when I got the printed one, like the, the cover image is just slightly off center. I don't know if anyone else ever noticed, but when I look at it now, all I see is like the, the, the one strip that's like kind of empty. I'm like, I hate that. So that's a bit of a bummer. Even so, then I still would have made a teeny tiny profit, except I never thought about postage. And one of my subscribers was in New Zealand and all my books (laughs) went to the United States. My parents got them for me rather than doing them from Japan because all my other subscribers were in the US. And because this big honking 500 page limited edition hardcover was so heavy, it cost 60 bucks to send it to New Zealand, at which point I officially went in the red. Not by much, but I did. So I made this amazing profit off my novel and then lost it all in a ridiculous act of generosity (laughs) that really wasn't necessary because everyone just wanted the emails anyway. Oh, well. (laughs) Well, I think two thoughts struck me, as you said. The first is that small strip on the cover that you notice every time you look at it, you just don't know if the people who've got it notice it as well. And I always remember when I was full-time running the courses at Rebel Business School, I would go to a course and our target was always to get 100 people at the course. So if there was 35 or 40 there, I'd feel a little bit sad inside Mm. that we hadn't got there. And I actually had to learn very quickly, don't project that sadness onto the customers because quite often the customers were ecstatic. They'd never seen a course with 40 people. They were used to six. Ah. But it was just a perspective thing. Sure. And you just don't know. So I would always ask the client and I'd hold inside all my emotions and find out what they think first. So what do you think of the course? What's happened? And they'd look around and go, I can't believe there's so many people at this place in this one thing. And I'd be going, I'm so glad you're happy. I really wanted double. Uh, but <laughs> I would never. I would always hold that inside because I think you never quite know exactly what the customer's feeling at that point you have to ask and I think the second bit actually ties into that which I think you've said is you don't quite know which bit of what you did created the most value (laughs) and it seems like the lesson you've learned over the period is actually the free email every day with the story that gets people so hooked they're they're waiting for the cliffhanger what's going to happen next every day that's the bit that created the most value. And I think, yeah, we always want to do more for our clients, but sometimes it's the simple things done really well. Yeah, the free things. And we're like, well, it was free for me to do. So why should I? Yeah, you almost feel a bit bad. Like this was free for me to do, but you love it. So I should give you more because you paid, but you don't have to. That's the thing they want. And it's this 
yeah, what's what's the word? It's the like drive between oh, I want to give more, and actually the thing that they really want is just this, just that. Do that one thing really well, and they'll love you for it forever. Yeah, well, I mean that that points to the fact that the one thing never accounted for was my labor or creativity. So technically, mm. the emails are free qua emails, but like the story wasn't free. I spent 13 no. months, you know, writing and editing and working over the story, plus like all the years of my life before then becoming the kind of person who could write the story. So in that sense, it was an immensely costly set of emails, not in money, but in like my whole life's energy. So like, why should I feel bad at people being willing to pay for those? I think it's, I think it's for a lot of artistic or creative people, like the, the value you create out of your head somehow doesn't seem to count because you're like, well, I just made it up out of nothing. Well, you didn't make it out of nothing. You made it up out of your life and your time. <laughs> but it doesn't, I don't know, like you said, it doesn't feel the same thing. So the, this impulse to give more as compensation, like, yeah, well, and just the gratitude at getting a response for sure. So what did you learn from this experience? Tell me what your learnings were, Sarah, what your learnings were. And then I'm really curious to know where you're going next. I have a huge <laughs> amount of thoughts and ideas. Oh, good. I was hoping I would get a free coaching session at the end of this. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So the first thing was like, yes, you can make more money money off of a novel or something that seems like a very static product, like a novel, there are lots of other things that can be done with it. So that's very cool. And um, I'm not sure I will do uh, exactly the same thing in the future, because this this particular novel, its length and its topic and everything was possibly unique. But now I know to think creatively about doing things besides just the print ebook, audiobook standard distribution. So that's the first one. I love that. I love that. And I think secondary to that is that when you have, you know, the true fans like Kevin Kelly's famous thousand true fans or 29 true fans, however many fans you have, like they're excited to support you. They want to support you. It gives them a feeling of pride and value that they're spending their own money on something that they can't make for themselves, but really enjoy. And if you can add that with some community elements, like talk to the author or talk to other readers, like I saw some of them like making connections with each other in the conversation. And that was really cool too. So that is actually, that's true value that you can bring around a creative product. Yes. it. I think sometimes we just think the product is the product and that's what I'm selling, but there are so many options and so many ways of doing it. And at Rebel Business School, I speak to people, they go, I want to launch this as a business. And they have the one specific vision in their mind of exactly what it is. Mm. And it's trying to open up that vision and go, well, what else could it be? How else could it grow? How else could it become a community, a source of people uh, and build something bigger? It's never, it's never just a novel. It's a whole community. It's a way of selling it as different things. And yeah, I love that you're bringing the people together around it and they do feel a sense of pride. They do feel a sense of enjoyment. I think that's fantastic, which I'm going to hold my question till after you've gone through your learnings, but I'm definitely thinking, okay. how else can we sell this one book? Like this mini okay. experiment is not dead yet. Oh, uh, okay. So <laughs> that's good go to know. What else I, did I guess you mentally have on the I was done. Yeah. 
Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just to the community thing also, you know, specific to mine is it's a story about a church, a congregation. And so like it very obviously taps in to people who belong to congregations and have had the set of experiences there. But, you know, it doesn't have to be you don't have to like duplicate the community that your story is about, you know, it, in the real world. But I think that was like an added bonus that I had for mine is that there's just a very obvious set of people who were going to say like, oh, my gosh, I have I have been on that church council. I know what that meeting is like. <laughs> so that really was cool. Um, another thing I learned is that I didn't know how to price it correctly. Uh, obviously not just the limited edition. That was that was bad, um, just advanced planning on my part. But as I reflected on it, like the high value add-ons were nice, but that's clearly not what people, they weren't really in it for the add-ons. They were in it to support me more. So I have a feeling I could have priced the lowest tier, maybe even higher and the highest tier way higher. (laughs) And people, people were paying according to like how, you know, of course, how much disposable income they had, but really like what it was worth it to them to support a project. That I was doing. And I think that's also different from maybe other kinds of business products where they're, if you're selling like a physical object like toilet paper, there's very clear costs in in manufacturing and distributing that product. And um, whereas something that is like supporting a creator, it seems like there's probably a kind of more flexible scale of what value people are willing to pay. And um, I think that's like on Kickstarter, they have so many tiers really is to like, just let everybody at every level all the way from the, just give a dollar because you think it's cool, all the way up to $2,500 so that I'm a named character in the story or something like that. So I think that that was helpful for me kind of rethinking about pricing experiences rather than pricing products is it's a different kind of thing that you for pricing those yeah and it kind of blurs the lines a bit because in a way a book is a product because you get a physical product and you can just buy it off the shelves and take it but then you can blur the lines and add experiences you can add different elements and I always remember I don't know if you ever listened to the coaching series with Jamie the artist who did the uh the comic book and the one tier that she added was the be the murder victim in the comic (laughs) you'll be drawn in as the murder victim and that went within two seconds (laughs) for uh, the amount it was charged and she could have charged way more for that particular one and it was those cool things that actually didn't cost her particularly anything extra at all but people loved being part of it yeah I wondered next time is there you could be on the church small council you'll be one (laughs) of the characters on the church small character council who has a line that says something funny um But it's those things, those experiences, those add-ons, and it doesn't necessarily have to be expensive hardback books. It doesn't necessarily have to be expensive things. It's the once-in-a-lifetime experiences or being a character or those kind of things that people go, wow, I could never get that. I I want that, which I think drives the top tiers. Yeah, well, it's so interesting. Clearly, when I was making this up, you know, I I was – 
pretty much thinking outside the box, which was good. But I still thought like the thing people most want is a limited edition hardcover. Whereas it turns out what people really wanted was to have a bit of story show up in their inbox every day for 18 weeks before the book was published. Like that was the cool factor, not not the physical object, which ended up putting me into debt for the whole project. So big learning there. <laughs> and then the last learning that I can I have brought to this so far before I learn more things from you is that um, one of the hardest things, especially for independent authors, is to market because people feel super weird about marketing their work. <laughs> and um, I've, I'm, I'm doing better about that. Um, but And I did good marketing beforehand. But then what I realized is that bringing people along for this cool experience meant that they became natural evangelists for the product. So I instantly got my first big batch of Amazon reviews from all the people who had followed the story because they loved it and they wanted, they're very happy to go and give me five stars and write up a little blurb uh, about what a great book it was. So that was brilliant. And that is, that's really hard to get is that kind of very personal, committed, enthusiastic, enthusiastic uh, word of mouth, you know, even on Amazon reviews, it's a form of word of mouth, but they also did a lot of actual word of mouth, you know, and I've heard people say like, I've already told a bunch of my friends, I got it for my mom for Christmas, you know, I'm going to see if I can organize a church group to read it together. So they just, because they were so invested in it, they became the natural marketers on my behalf. And probably in that sense, the, the value of doing this kind of project, you know, if you tried to monetize it, it would still be quite a bit bigger. I would I would be back in the black <laughs> instead of in the red <laughs> if I thought about what it cost to buy that kind of marketing reach. Um, so that was actually a really good thing too, is that fans are natural marketers on your behalf. Yes, they definitely are. They definitely are. Uh, so where are you going from here, Sarah? What's the plan? What's next? <laughs> what are your thoughts? Are you finished with this project? Are you thinking about marketing it again? Hmm. What are you thinking? So since I published it last November, I've, you know, had steady trickle of sales. Again, you know, it's it's hard to be heard in a noisy world. Um, and I've continued to like send emails, reach out to like groups that are obvious connections um, to it. Um, I've gotten on some other podcasts to talk about it. And so I'm trying to do just kind of natural organic marketing to the kind of people who are likely, the kind of people who are likely to like the book or are also likely to listen to X or Y podcast. So I, I've been doing it mostly like that. I'm um, not at this point, I haven't really done anything with like, um, I well, I'm averse to social media, but I'm okay with that. I'm willing to, to, to deal with that. And um, I have not paid for advertising. And when I've tried to use book services, again, I'm so niche that like a, a kind of generic label, like inspirational fiction, which isn't really what I'm doing, but it's the closest that it would fit. Like people get pissed off because they're like, this is not an inspiring story. Terrible stuff happens. So like, <laughs> yeah. So like the usual like genre category labels don't work. But I've, I think I've done an okay job of like figuring out the sort of organic reach. So I'm doing that. I'm also, I'm writing some more books. Um, I actually started a second podcast of my short stories because I thought wow. like, so like my main podcast for the past five years has been discussing theology with my dad. But I realized that like what I'm really trying to do 
with the fiction is like a specific intersection of theology and fiction. And again, there aren't a lot of things like that right now. So I was like, well, I should pioneer it. And uh, with something like short stories, books of short stories sell very, very badly as a rule, like novels sell Mm -hmm. way better than short story collections. So I thought, well, again, I am creating the value anyway, but I think in this case, um, deploying the value creatively is more using the stories in an audio format for free to like reach out to people. So it's basically the the freemium or not freemium really, but like it's the marketing. It's giving people a taste of what I do in order to draw them into the ecosystem of the paid stuff, like the longer, more substantial books. And so anyway, so I'm working on now getting the word out about that podcast with the very boring name, Sarah Hinlicky Wilson Stories. But from the advice I read about this, you want your name to be stuck in people's head and it's stories. So Boring, but extremely accurate. And um, so I'm trying things like that. Um, I would say at this point, because again, I'm so niche that like finding my people is probably the biggest um, challenge still. But I think when I find them, they're very enthusiastic about what I do. And then they'll be, they'll have a backlist of things from me already. So I think going forward, what I need to do is figure out again, how to do some creative experience experiences based on the books that will I'll be able to, you know, price higher and then, you know, make something like a return on my labor, at least <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> so that's what I got so far. But coach me. Uh, oh, great. Alan Donegan. Tell me where I should go from here. Well, I'm not quite great. Alan Donegan. I'm just Alan who <laughs> has started a few businesses over the years. But the things that were coming to mind as you were speaking were number one, it helps to have a launch. So having a launch, having a big date, having something happen gives you something to promote Mm -hmm. as a bigger thing rather than sort of the book is there and that's what you talk about. Like you've got a specific date, you've got something happen. Maybe it's this experience, maybe it's you're re-releasing the 18-week thing and you're going to do the 18-week thing. They don't even need to know it's happened before, but you're doing the 18-week thing. It's got the four authors things. Maybe it's that happening again. Um, But something to launch, something to promote Hmm. really helps. And having a specific date and a deadline Hmm. gives you that time-bound thing of you need to buy by this date. Right, right. Uh, and it's not even a made-up date. It's because it happens on that date. This is what's happening, and you need to buy by that date. And that gives you a reason to mail the mailing list, to speak on the podcast, to reach out to everyone you've ever known, saying, like, I'm doing this, tell everyone. It gives you something to focus on. So I'm wondering whether a relaunch, a slightly different mm-hmm. version, take your learnings and roll it into version two, and let's go from that. Mm-hmm. and then. I would add into that the second bit of you said the hardest bit was finding your audience. Who specifically? Is it Lutheran church members? Is it foodies? Is it <laughs> Lutheran church members who eat cake? Is it like who who specifically is it? And then I'm thinking, well, I wonder how we can find the groups of those people. Mm. They must be hiding in a group on social media somewhere. Mm. And if this was a live workshop, I would be loading 
Twitter, now known as X, or I would be loading <laughs> Facebook and finding groups, or I would be loading LinkedIn and going, is there a Lutheran church group on LinkedIn? I have no idea. I would be searching for those groups and trying to find those people. And I'm probably focusing on Lutheran church members because the people who believe in the church, I would assume, would tell people they believe in the church and that's part of their identity so you're more likely to find them in those groups have you have you headed down that line trying to find people oh yes that has always been like the most obvious connection for me because i am a pastor and i know tons of pastors and congregations so yeah i've done i've done a lot of outreach along those lines and um your intuition about the cake is probably not wrong because my <laughs> my newsletter on my website is called theology and a recipe so it's a theological essay and then recipes so like i'm attracting people who like both of those things and so and even with the novel which is a very theological novel i i created some bonus content and one was like a little cookbook from supposedly from the characters in the church with all their favorite dessert recipes and oh like, wow yeah people love that that was that was a big plus as well um so the thing is like i do write fiction but it's theological fiction so you need people who are like churchy people but like to read novels but people who like to read novels that are really theological and so what's interesting is that i've definitely had a bunch of lutherans but also people of other christian denominations like catholics and episcopalians and reformed of various kinds, you know, um, or orthodox, like kind of the whole range, really, you know, people, but usually they have some connection to me and like they kind of inhabit that same world of wanting to have kind of a, a higher and more sophisticated level of literary engagement with like the whole Christian faith. So, mm. so yeah, so that's kind of the thing is like, there's nothing there's a few organizations that I'm trying to make contact with that look in those places. There's actually a conference I'm going to try to go to next year that I think will be a natural intersection. But again, it's not huge. And it really, mm. it's very, you know, very much, well, you know, all art is to people's specific taste. So, you know, some people who are really into theology and even cooking are going to be like, well, this is a novel about a family. And, you know, like I read thrillers, even though I love theology and cooking. <laughs> So, yes. uh, yeah, so it, it's kind of like cast a wide net in a likely direction. And, you know, if I pick up a few people each time, that's that's probably pretty good for how niched down <laughs> my work is. Because I was just, as you were speaking, having a little look on LinkedIn, and I know that's the most random thing that people would never think of. Um, but there's like the Californian Lutheran University alumni with 3000 members and there's... <laughs> The Lutheran School of Management with 2,000 members and the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America with 2,000 members in groups. Right, right. Um, so if they're in groups, that's a group that you can start to join, start to message the members, start to actually like connect with people. So there are groups of those people, and I'm wondering how we can connect with those people in those groups and see if we can find the people, the crossover between Lutheran's cake and novels. Right. Uh, right. That, that is the like magic the Venn diagram. <laughs> well, I will say just from my experience too, though, with church groups, like they're, they're a little cautious if you come in with something to sell because, you mm. know, church is supposed to be a free zone, which, you know, I get, you know, I, I do that when I do church stuff, like I do not market to my own congregation. Some of them know that I write, but I'm not, 
pushing it on them because they're a captive audience and that would be kind of a violation of of the trust. So, but there are other ways to kind of like connect in different ways, like going to pastor groups in like, so this, the novel is set in upstate New York. So I just reached out to the heads of the various sections of pastors in upstate New York. And, you know, a couple of them wrote back really enthusiastic. They're like, yeah, let's get you on a video call. So th- those kind of things work well, but there does seem to be, it's, it really makes a difference to have some kind of like personal connection already in place mm-hmm. rather than like, hey, I'm just this random Lutheran pastor who wrote a novel that you would love and they would love it if they read it. But, you know, that's that just seems kind of sketchy coming out of nowhere. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. So then it sounds like the the two keys are one, some cold outreach because it is important. And two, asking the people, you know, who they can connect you to. Uh, when was the last time you asked your audience who they can connect you to, to speak about this stuff? I suppose it's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that might be nice. Like if you have a specific launch date that you're launching something, then you can say to your fans, your audience, your podcast, can you connect me to people that I can talk to about this? What other Mm. podcasts do you listen to? Can you email the podcast host and tell them I would make him a great guest? Yeah. Uh, Can you introduce me to this, to that? I, I have a talk on this. I have this, um, Yeah, I'd start asking the fans that love what you do to put you in touch with cool people around the world. Yeah, that's great. And I really like your idea of having events like a launch or some other kind of event to work for because it creates like the buzz and excitement and also the deadline, you know, like you have to do it by this time or the opportunity is over. And I'm sure that helps with my subscription that like it starts in June. So you have to sign up and start from the beginning. And once the train has left the station, you're left behind. So um, not to make an allusion to a famous Christian novel (laughs) series or anything there. But um, yeah, so yeah, the idea of having more event based things, even if it isn't an eight week long event, but any kind of event that creates some sort of excitement. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it gives you a date, gives you some energy, gives you something to work towards, gives you something to shout about, to email about, to right. to push out there. I think that works really well. And I guess partly I'm saying ask for your audience for help because historically that's something I'm very bad at. Uh, and it's always the interesting bit, isn't it? The thing you're bad at is the thing you go, okay, this is what other people should do because it will really work. <laughs> and um, Katie and I actually uh, did it recently um, and we need to do some more of it, but there's a, a Plutus Awards. I don't know if you've heard about that, but in the financial independence mm-hmm. world, there's a thing called Plutus Awards and they give you an award for doing good content around uh, finances. And we run the Rebel Finance School and we write on the blog about finances and we asked people on our mailing list, would you mind nominating us? Uh, and a bunch of people have nominated us for oh, cool. the Plutus People's Plutus Plutus People's Choice Award. It's a mouthful. There's a lot of P's in there. And um, we'll have to see what happens. But at the moment, we're top of the list for writing and the long form video. So it'd be really interesting. But we actually asked, would you please nominate us for the Plutus People's Choice Award Mm. for the long form video for Rebel Finance School? And people were like, of course we will. Uh, we're happy to help but I don't think like the specific request I think is so critical so I'm thinking what specific request 
can you make of your audience? Can you introduce me to X? Can you introduce right. me to Y? What podcast do you listen to? Can you email the host of the podcast and tell them I'd make right. a great guest or I'd do this? Like the very specific request of can you do this to help me makes it a lot easier for people to be able to do it because then they're like, well, yes, I can do that one thing. Whereas can you help me promote the book? It's like, yes, I would love yeah. to, but how? Right. How do I actionable. do that? Yeah. Yeah. So the more specific, the easier it is for your audience to to oh. to actually do what you want them to do, which is to help you. And they love it as well. It's right. like click on this exact link, <laughs> fill in this exact form. It'll take you two minutes. Right. Share this post. Send this little bit of text. Like that exact thing that I can do and I will do it for you because I love what you do. Right, but if right. I don't know what to do, if it's just can I help you promote? Yes not very good at promotion what do I do yeah and then that's they really stare interesting off to the distance on, and don't do it at the end of my podcast I say always please tell a friend about the show it seems specific but it's actually not because like which friend and when and how and should you send an episode you know whereas if you say like send an email and say please click this link to nominate our podcast for this specific award which they need to get nominations by this date then people are like okay yes I want my favorite podcast to win an award and it's very clear what to do so that's very helpful is to be more specific in the ask on the assumption that people who like your work want to help because they they like what you're doing and they believe in you they do generally people feel good helping other people and being asked for help and i think we as business people creators authors aren't very good at asking and it's a common theme uh, that I have heard for a long time is that we just don't ask and we could ask more and people are very happy to help if they know how to. So I think that's my homework for you, Sarah, okay. is to ask specifically for the help that you want. And that's the same for everyone listening to the podcast today. Your mission is to ask specifically for the help you want from your customers. In, if you've got a cleaning business, ask your five favorite clients if they know anyone else you could work for or like, could they recommend you to houses with dogs and you're very good at cleaning dog hair and making them sparkle again? I don't know what it is, <laughs> but like the more specific, the better. Do you know any Lutherans that eat cake? <laughs> uh, those are my customers the more specific the easier it is for people to say yes I can help I know that person um, the less specific it is the harder it is to actually do it for people so that would be the big thing I would be saying to everyone listening to this is ask five people send out a mailing list email and put at the end your direct request Ask for the help you want, because the people who love what you do, they want to help you. They just need to know how. That is fantastic. And, you know, it actually ties in really nicely to novel writing, because everyone who starts trying to write a story tries to make it super general because they think it will be universal and it connects to nobody. If you write a very, very specific story that's very time and culturally and emotionally located in one place, everyone will say it's universal and it speaks to them, even if they've never had the same set of experiences or been in the same location. So there you go. The more specific is the more universal. 
Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Isn't that interesting how the world works? We're all trying to please everyone, which means you end up pleasing no one. If you're more specific, it ends up pleasing far more people. I love that. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your experiences of running your, it wasn't a Kickstarter, but running your campaign for the book. I think it's so valuable. If people wanted to find out more about the book, more about you, listen to your podcast, where do they go, Sarah? Well, they can get all of it at my website, which is sarahhinlickywilson.com. Just more or less get it phonetically right and it will pop up. Um, my press is called Thornbush Press. My one podcast is Queen of the Sciences. The other one is Sarah Hinlicky Wilson Stories. There's lots of me out there, so you'll find something. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for coming on. Sarah, good luck with the next launch, whatever it may be. And please let us know what you do and what you get up for. Thanks. I will. And thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation. I'm very thrilled to be a part of the, the bigger <laughs> rebel entrepreneur world. I'm so glad you came along. I'm so glad you came along. And everyone listening, please go out there and ask for the help you need. Ask because people like to be asked. They feel honored to be asked for their help. Thanks for listening to The Rebel Entrepreneur. And as always, go do it.